0: Welcome to the Simplified Marketing Podcast. Straight talking ideas to grow your business.
1: Hello and welcome to the Simplified Marketing Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes so you get regular updates with all the episodes. And of course, please leave us a review on iTunes uh, so that we can spread the word and more people can find out more about us. And don't forget to visit the website as well for lots more accompanying information and the downloads. Um, The URL is handily located on the screen. Right now. Now, my name is John Lowley, I'm your web wizard.
0: And I'm Georgia, I'm your design and brand guardian.
1: I'm Andrew Black, and I help tradespeople get off the tools. We've got a very special show for you today, it's a bit more long form, but we're uh, starting to speak to different business owners and how they've made it. Now, um, this particular episode, me and Andrew uh, spoke to a guy called Gary Withers. Gary with us has been in business for quite some time um, and Andrew, tell us a bit more about uh, Gary. Yes,
2: yeah, so I've known Gary for the last four or five years and he runs an air conditioning company up in Welling Garden City. He's actually been in business for the last 20 years, which is maybe for a lot of the people that I know is a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you see a lot of companies come in and go out. He's survived the 2008 recession, which is one of the points he mentions in the podcast. Um, so, yeah, really good getting to know him and some fantastic points, fantastic takeaways.
1: One of the things I think to listen out for is Gary, Gary comes up with at least two, I think, really pertinent points for business owners or people on the tools within a business. Um, and one of those is to put those tools away.
2: Yeah, it was almost the, the physical act of kind of not going to work with your tools or giving them away or letting go of that aspect of who he was In order to be able to become that business owner and that sort of physical act that change of physiology that mindset shift that he had um ultimately led to him getting off the tools within two years of being a tradesperson and turning his business now i believe they turn three three or four million a year so that was huge absolutely huge and that obviously came from a mentor that he had for a period of time
0: well that's so important to do because while you're on the tools you can't be focusing on other areas of your business like your marketing and brand what's going on behind the scenes and giving you the sight and time to be able to grow the business to where it wants to be. And I know that's something all my trades boy clients are all just so passionate about. They're all trying to get off the tools, but without putting everything else in place, they can't do that yet. Um, so it'd be interesting to see um, what Gary has to say.
2: Yeah, I think um, there's also, there's almost this this waiting and wanting you know, There's a lot of trades people, there's a lot of business people that kind of feel that everything's got to be perfect before mm. they can then hand their tools down. And I know Gary specifically mentioned that being worried that his team wouldn't be able to look after his customers as well as he could. And that was a key point, so definitely one to look out for.
1: Mm, great stuff. Okay, then. So let's dive right in with Gary. So we are here today with Gary Rivers. Gary
2: from AAC. Welcome. Gary Rivers. That's it. Got it right? <laughs> and John Lawley, if you don't know John Lawley. So Gary, just to go straight into it, just tell us a little bit how it all began with you. How did your AAC journey start? Good heavens.
3: Straight in at the deep end. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It was quite a bizarre start, actually. Um, uh, a friend of mine who had inherited some money uh, wanted to go to the franchise show. I basically took a day out of my estate agency to skype off for the day just to keep him company. And um, we went to the franchise show at the NEC and um, we wandered around, we looked at lots of franchises. They all seemed grossly overpriced and quite ridiculous, most of them. And then we stumbled upon a northern chap called Greg Langley, who had a life-size cutout of himself holding a banner, like <laughs> right that, saying, I earned £114,000 in my first year. And that was a good draw onto the stand. Yeah. So we both gone onto the stand. And had a chat with him and he talked to us about air conditioning and how it worked and so on and so on. And I actually, there's something, there was a trigger. And and I enjoyed looking at the product, enjoyed listening to him. Cut a long story short, um, I bought the franchise. And my friend who went up there to buy a franchise, he didn't buy anything. <laughs> so anyway. I So just, you got sold to, is what yeah. happens. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. So. I came home. This was, uh, this was a dark, cold night in, in October. Right. We didn't have a lot of money. And I came home and I said to the wife, I said, I've bought an air conditioning franchise. And she's thinking, oh, good. That's just what we need in England. <laughs> that would be absolutely marvellous. So, uh, and everybody around me, my family and everybody else said they thought it was a ridiculous idea. And anyway, I did a little bit of research. I actually knew someone who had a cousin who worked for a large London air conditioning company. And they let me go and work in there for a, for a week just so I could get a little feel for it, what it was like, and so on. And, and I enjoyed it. So I pursued it, and I did complete the purchase of the franchise, and then we traded as a franchise for a year. We had um, fairly basic training, four weeks in a classroom, um, and um, then we went out and started installing air conditioning. Was that and, scary, or was that, <laughs> <of> that <laughs> it, it was. It was quite scary. Um, I mean, we're installing it installing air conditioning and fixing air conditioning are two totally different things right. fixing air conditioning you really do need to understand it installing it you need to be able to read the instructions and know how to use a drill and a spirit level so it's relatively straightforward you need to be able to run a business which i could already do you need to be able to sell which i could already do so it was all um it was all systems go and uh, yeah of course it was scary to start wow. that first time you're you're drilling up. Big hole through someone's wall. What could go wrong? What possibly go wrong? Absolutely. Um, and so it kind of went for there. And I did two years on tools myself. So I did the selling, I did the books, I did the all the installations, I did everything myself. I called in a bit of muscle when I needed a second pair of hands to lift units up and so on. Did that for two years and and made good wages from doing it. Um, after two years, I started to think, how can I make this bigger? I was getting a little bit grumpy that that. I was working flat out, and things were quite good, but how does it get better? And uh, Hillary arranged, uh, we've got one, a friend of ours who, can I mention his name? Yeah, of course. Yeah. It, was, it was a guy called Daryl Foster who owned Addison Lee Taxis. Right. And Hillary was friends with his wife, and we had dinner with them. She arranged it all. And um, Darrell said, how's it going? Um, and um, so I said, been a bit grumpy. And he said to me, you need to take your toolbox, either throw it away, Give it away, but don't ever take toolbox out again. He said, because if I drove one of my taxis, I wouldn't have 700 taxis today. I put my argument in there that other people installers wouldn't do it as well as I do it. And, um, and he said, they won't. They won't ever do it as well as you do. They won't ever treat your customers as well as you treat your customers. He said, but if they treat them 90% as well as you do, he said, that is actually good enough to run and grow a business. And literally within two weeks, I'd employed my first people. And, uh, and it started from there. And I did get rid of my toolbox. I listened to Daryl, and I've always thanked him for that bit of information, bit of advice, bit of advice. And then it kind of grew from there. So I went out selling. Um, I put the lady in the office who's still with me today. Got the first pair of engineers in the van, then got the second pair of engineers in the van, then third pair of engineers in the van, and then someone else to help me sell it and project manage it. Kind of 20 years later, we're here. It was not stratospheric growth, mm-hmm. growth. But it's a steady growth, fairly solid company, and, um, and still good fun. But how important was that dinner? How important was that bit of advice in hindsight? Oh, oh, enormously. Yeah. And I've given the same advice to other people as well. Yeah. Other people who have come to me and said, how do I grow my business? How? And you can see they're doing exactly what I was doing. Yeah. And they say the same things about the customers, but no one will look after my customers like I do. And it's true. Your staff will not look after your customers and show them the love, because I do love my customers, the way that the owner does yeah do you find that
2: with a prevalent problem with different trades people different trades group that may be stuck with that old style mindset i mean the advice that you've given to them do you often see them
3: months later have they taken your advice or are they still very much stuck still very much stuck yeah so, it's a really big <clears throat> transition to to going out there every day with your tools and your you your it's tangible what you're doing mm. You're fitting something to the wall and somebody's paying you. You're earning money by going and doing that. And to stop doing that and then becoming an overhead is a huge, huge transition. So is that the mindset then? So is that you're, you're out in the field, you're creating
1: something versus directing other people?
3: And are people scared of doing that? Is that what yeah. you think that is? Yeah, no, people are. They can't, they can't, it's such a big step, especially if you've got a mortgage, you've got, you know, you've got yeah. dependents. Yeah, it's a risk. I suppose it's always
2: one of those risks if you've got a technical skill which obviously you had from the installation it all goes terribly wrong
3: tomorrow you can pick your tools up and go back to where it all began. Absolutely. Absolutely. The first time I went self-employed I had a habit of, um, of getting sacked from every job I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, something it, you seem a little bit proud of actually. Mm, even, yeah. even, <laughs> even when I went, worked for my parents who had a, a small chain of care homes nursing homes and things and, um, and I, it was just never for me working for somebody else. Uh, it's in a previous relationship so we're going back uh, to early 90s, early 90s and um, I got sacked again and I was living with my girlfriend and it was like, oh, come on, I've been sacked again and just not very good at taking instructions. And I said, I want to do this. This was in a lettings business, residential lettings. And um, I think it must have been, was it 89 or ninety. So we'd had the, the 1988 Housing Act which had made uh, short short shorthold tenancies, created all of that and also, all of a sudden the residential letting market was booming. I thought, I want to do that because um, I was in a state See, I was doing that for someone else. I want to do it for myself. And she said, because she was quite a bright girl, and she said, um, we went through the, how much money we had in the bank and how much the mortgage was and everything else. And she said, we've got three months for you to do this and see if you can make more than you were making, working for somebody else. She said, after that, you've got to go and get a job and try and keep it. <laughs> um, and um, so we did it. And, and, and week one... I made more than I made in a month working with somebody else. Brilliant. Is that because um, of the incentive or is that just you wanted to prove someone wrong? Uh, or prove yourself, even. Prove myself, really. Um, and yeah, it seems, I just, if you want to learn, if I want, if I put my mind to doing something, then I will, I will do it. Um, and you've got to be a little <coughs> bit risk averse as well. So you can't, you can't, don't take stupid risks. So it's small risk. And as you said earlier, one of you just said earlier, Three months down the line, you've got a skill, well, i just go and get a job. Mm. But if one of the differences you
2: mentioned there is, is having that kind of balance in terms of someone to look at the numbers and do the numbers and, and have those targets and be very realistic with it. I think when you're a little bit younger, a lot of the times people go, yep, I'm going to do it and don't really have an idea that they have got a month's worth of money or three months worth of money. How important are the financials in, in a business or before you start a new idea?
3: How oh, very Absolutely. You've got to know, um, you, you've got to have a realistic approach um, to what it's going to cost. I had a friend of mine recently, this is current, I won't say any names, it is current, and he's thinking about changing his business. He, he's had enough of what he's doing, he wants to do something else, and he's incredible, uh, incredibly skilled at his business, what he does, but his business head, I don't think he's a businessman. He's run a business, but he's not a true businessman, I don't think. He's just been very successful at running doing that business he's been involved in it and still manufacturing it himself and, and so yeah. on the shop floor basically and he wants to go off to something else and the the risks of, of getting rid of one business and starting something else but you've got no knowledge of the other business and you've got a family you've got a mortgage you, you've got to you have to know that there's enough money to do it, it doesn't have to be loads of you've got to have enough money to survive for a period of time you Yeah. Know? Because um, in some ways, when I started the air conditioning, I was already—I was lucky because I had an—I had two estate agency offices, um, which I used to earn pretty much jack all from. Um, that it was really, really—I was not very good at being a estate agent. Yeah. Well,
2: to go back into the air conditioning, you've been doing that for now 20 years. How yeah. has AAC uh, maybe diversified its products or gone and done other bits and pieces?
3: We've still been very strong with our core core business of air conditioning. Um, we diversified. Not everything's rosy. Not everything's been good. We, we diversified into plumbing, to mm-hmm. a harder business. Um, and air conditioning is still seen as very niche. Um, even on sites that we're on, we're still viewed as a specialist, a little bit like AV companies and people like that, or controls companies. We're the specialists, you get the main trades: the plumbers, the electricians, and so on, that rightly or wrongly, and I'm not gonna say, but they're viewed sort of the next step down the ladder to the specialist. Um, so when we got into plumbing, we ended up being plumbing and heating. We ended up being a bit more mainstream, uh, which was a bit of a culture shock. Uh, and we're up against a lot of one-man bands, who can be cheaper than us. Mm. Um, so it's a constant battle about price. Everybody, everyone in the nation knows a plumber. Yeah. Everyone knows an electrician, but how many people know an air conditioning contractor? But they don't. So. We've moved a little bit more into, on that side of the business, we've moved a bit more into doing um, uh, renewables, so air source heat pumps, a bit of solar PV and stuff. Obviously, solar PV got killed a few years ago when the government removed all the tariffs or reduced all the tariffs. Air source heat pumps, again, it's a bit niche. Um, A lot of the one-man band, plumbers, uh, heating engineers, I should say, are scared Mm -hmm. by it. It is a lot more complicated than fitting a gas boiler on the wall. So we, we do a bit of that. But um, and then we've got an electrical side as well, which, again, suffers the same problems as the plumbing side. Yeah, we do stuff where we work for companies where they want a company uh, with an infrastructure to do a lot of their maintenance and testing. And, and have you had to diversify into different areas in order to sell a main product, if you like? Does what, it what, no, I'll tell you why around. we diversified. We diversified in 2008 or uh, 2008, when the recession hit. Mm. We felt the recession at the end of 2008, it started. We'd not, we didn't have such a thing as bad months. And then then we had a bad month. Strangely, just as I completed on a brand new building, it was, it was just I like exchanged on a brand new building, we had a bad month. Thought, oh, that's odd, we had a bad month. And then we had another, and then we had years of bad months because the recession kicked in. Um, and air conditioning being a luxury product, Yeah. Um, was being was the first thing to get crossed off you've got to have the ele- you've, got, you've got to have the electrics you've got to have the lights you've got to have the data you've got to have your toilets you've got to have your, your heating mm-hmm. but air conditioning was crossed off so the air conditioning industry got hit really hard I'm not saying the others didn't but it got hit harder because it, the luxury product was taken away
2: and although air conditioning is still
3: seen as a niche do you think it's a lot more um, affordable or popular these days definitely down south definitely in the London areas Definitely. Uh, We're noticing, we're based in Wellington City, uh, so in Hertfordshire, and most of our work is from us down to to the Thames. Mm. It's to the Thames by choice, really, because you're either from North London or you're from South London, (laughs) and you don't like crossing over, it's just one of those things. So we basically go to the Thames, logistically, it's sensible for us to stay this side of the Thames, and most of our work is south of us down to the Thames. So it's it's a it's a London thing, particularly on the residential market. Particularly right. on the residential market. Saying that, last year when we two thousand eighteen, when it was really hot, we had extremely yeah. the the market for air conditioning, domestic residential air conditioning in Hertfordshire increased. It's still a tiny percentage of what we do, right? But we are starting to do jobs around Hertfordshire.
2: And given the competition with um, electrics and, and gas and heating. Is your focus on the next couple of years to very much build that domestic market in air conditioning?
3: Yes, definitely. We're always trying to drive that forward market. We've been in it for 20 years, so we've got a good, strong reputation. And um, uh, and it's, it's built on referrals. It's built on referrals.
2: Do you think, um, you mentioned the solar panels and the renewable energy and so on. Do you think the government's doing enough to either give information to the end user or to support companies in terms of
3: installations or tariffs or so on? no not really i don't think they're doing they're they're not doing enough they're not doing enough um the solar solar industry yes i understand they had to cut the tariff but to to decimate it the way they've done it to destroy the industry there's no incentive and we're installing pv we're installing pv every week but it's normally where planning constraints have said that there's got to be PV on a block of flats to no. do the um, do the landlord's areas. There's got to be something.
2: Yeah, um, you mentioned word of mouth and you mentioned referrals. Um, how important has B&I as an organisation been to you and your company?
3: It's been very good. It's a funny story because it's eight, uh, 20, uh, where were we? twenty nineteen years ago, I joined a small B&I group and it was a starter group. and It's very small, 15 people or so. And we made some good money for it for two years. But it was at that point where I was getting busier, but, and I, then I left. And then four years ago, I came to Fortune, BNI Fortune. A friend of mine asked me to come along um, because, obviously, you get brownie points for, <laughs> for bringing a visitor along. And I said, I've, I've been to BNI. I'm not doing it. I'll come as a visitor. You buy me breakfast. Everything's fine. <laughs> and I, well, as you know, I joined on that day. I applied and paid at the end of the meeting. Yeah. It was it's such a good chapter. And I thought, Do you know what? This is in our core area for residential air conditioning. And what can go wrong? And it hasn't. And it hasn't, no. No, it's been really, really good for us, as you know. I think we've, we've, we've put a lot into the chapter, and, uh, and we've had a lot out.
1: Just, just as an aside, and, and obviously as someone who's, who's had a lot of success in business, how, cause you just talked about two things there, which have been almost on an impulse. Franchise, first of all, and then I'm here this seems good, I'm going to sign up straight away. It's how how, um, how important is it to take <laughs> yeah. that kind of leap of faith, if you like? Were they, I mean, they seem like impulses the way you've described them. Were they, first of all? But I mean, it's
3: yeah, I mean, i didn't, not I mean, to try something out? There's, there's some people that will do, do uh, will do loads of research on things and no, I'm not like that. And at the end of the day, let's go to BNI because that's the easiest one. It was a, it's a, it was a seven, eight hundred quid spend. Mm-hmm. Well, the chances are I would have got one order, which would have given me that seven eight hundred quid back. The chances are I would have done that, one yeah. or two orders, and so it wasn't a big risk. It was my time, committing yeah. my time to That's going every Tuesday morning and yeah. then doing all of that. That was the risk. It was it, it's not a big decision, not a big. De- the franchise was a bit of a different one because we didn't, you know, money was a lot tighter, and I would only gone to keep my pal company for the day to the franchise show. I hadn't gone with any intention. Of buying anything, yeah. it was just to keep him company, and um, so that was that was that was met with uh, a lot more resistance to me joining than me joining BMI, <laughs> uh, by the family, Fair and by the wife, and so on. So, Fair enough, but that, that uh, the impulse, yes, it's sometimes taking a, taking a chance. Yeah. I, I did, the, when I met this fellow, as I said to you, Greg Langley, he said, he talked about, mar- I quizzed him about margins and how long things took and everything else. And he said, look, could you, could you install that on the wall and put pipework like that and do that? And I'm thinking, oh, I could do that. Um, and then he talked about margins and everything. And I then went away and confirmed those margins myself mm-hmm. and did my own inquiries, obviously. They weren't extensive. I spoke to a few people and obviously, I, I got a bit of help from this, from this large London company where I knew I, I was introduced to Palomine's cousin. And, um, and he confirmed those margins. I then spoke to some of his project managers and they kind of confirmed the margins. And I'm thinking, they sound like quite good margins to me. Good work. And it doesn't look that difficult. And I know my network was already quite big. My personal network was quite big, having been in the state agency for 10 years, I think, at that stage. But the franchise was quite cheap also, so that made it a little bit easier. So lower, a lot of the franchises century. there were was pay us £60,000 and if you work really hard, you can earn £30,000. Yeah. It didn't seem to make a lot of sense. At that time, the franchise was £14,000 because it was a new franchise and he just wanted to get franchisees mm. in. The um, The commission you give them, in right. other words, royalties, Yeah, they were higher than some of the other companies because the initial capital outlay was lower. Mm. It was a five-year contract. As luck would have it, um, the franchise all went under after a year. So I was on my own. So whilst I wouldn't obviously wish that on anybody, and he restarted under a new name and he's still trading today, but um, it was um, that was quite convenient in a way because I got out of the contract after a year and I could then carry on sailing my ship on my own, um, which is good.
1: In other words, you don't, you've learnt enough.
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely, I'm definitely. Sure. I realised that after six months that I kind of didn't really need them. Yeah. And then you think, ooh, I've got another four and a half years <laughs> of paying them a the percentage of my turnover. But, um, so there is a bit of luck involved, obviously. No. Kind of think I know the answer to this question
2: already, but I want everyone else to know: is who are the worst trades to work with? Oh, plumbers. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that
2: was really quick as well. <laughs> okay, you got sort of an emotional response to that as well. <laughs> uh, so, you, when you work with these guys on some of the private projects that you do, what are your major frustrations with some of the one-man bands or two-man bands, whether it's just plumbing or just across the board?
3: Uh, across the board is communication. Communication with, with one-man bands is, is tragic most of the time, most of the time, particularly plumbers. Plumbers do seem to be the worst out of the bunch for some reason. I don't know why. Electricians are, are okay. Yeah. But all of the trades, you know, the carpenters and the roofers and everybody else, if it is a one-man band, the biggest problem is, is communication and communication <laughs> and then followed by communication. Communica- yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Oh well, look a little um, quickfire round here. So, Italy or Spain? I prefer Spain. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Football or rugby? Oh, don't like either. Labour or Conservative? Mm, conservative. <laughs> Plumbers or electricians? Electricians. Blondes or brunettes? Oh, blondes. Red or white wine? White, currently. And Bentleys or Rolls Royce? <sighs> <sighs> ah. <laughs> um, Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce. Yeah. Is, is that
3: right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> so, your next car? That's the target.
3: I'll, I'd love a Rolls Royce one day. <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: Okay, so just to go on to something that you spoke about, BRDs. Can I Arizona. talk about Rolls Royces? You can, of course, can. Yeah. Momentarily. Go for, go for it. When I was at school, I had a friend whose dad was was, was wealthy and proper East hard lad, caught me. And um, in 1976, he bought a brand new white Rolls Royce. P Reg, I remember it. And, um, and he, we went out in it one day. He was dropping me home from his, from his house and that was it. And having the spirit of ecstasy, the e- spirit of ecstasy at the end of the bonnet going as, as you go around the corners, <laughs> thinking, I have to have one of these. And that was when I fell in love with Rolls Royces. Okay. And I love them till today.
2: Isn't so, it funny how all the memories, there's always some sort of like an emotional trigger. Yeah. And it kind of drives a lot of the things we do, our choices we make, ambitions that we have. So that was it. Rolls yeah, rolls. no,
3: absolutely. Well, now,
2: just to go back to a presentation you did at BNI a little while ago, and um, you do quite a lot of work with Cherry Lodge at the moment. So, do you just yes. want to talk about your
3: involvement with that charity? Yeah. So, Cherry Cherry Lodge Cancer Care in Union Street in Barnet, um, small, very small, cancer charity that um, provides a lovely caring service to people who have been diagnosed with any form of cancer. To them, to their families, to their carers, whoever. Um, but it is a very small charity. As you know, I was diagnosed gosh, diagnosed five years ago with prostate cancer. I was lucky that I, I picked the surgeon that I wanted to go and see, and I had faith and, and trust in him. And we decided to go through uh, active observation, active surveillance, sorry, active surveillance, they called it. So we're just gonna watch it for five years. Well, we're gonna watch it. We, we go in every six months and we'll watch it. We do blood tests and examinations every six months just to keep an eye on what it's doing. And he said, if you're lucky, you might get 15 years before we've got to do anything. And if you're unlucky, we'll have to do something sooner. He said, no. but seeing you every six months, we shouldn't, there's no guarantees with this, but we shouldn't get caught out. So, um, and that's what we did. And I got five years before it suddenly started to get worse and grow and the readings went up and the tumours got bigger and so on. So, so we had to go in and do something about it. Um, and then I chose to go in and have brachytherapy. Um, which is radioactive seeds in your prostate because that was the least damaging to your to your urinary functions and continence and um, and erectile function Fair enough which at fifty five is still quite fifty six is still quite important it 's good to know yeah so um, <laughs> it 's the least damaging for, for those things um so um so I had that treatment but um but cherry Lodge, whilst I kind of had already organized it all and knew what I was doing um Bless the lovely Yvonne from Cherry Lodge. She said, you must come and see our cancer nurse. And I'm thinking, no, I don't need to because I know what I'm doing and let someone else who's more needy than me. And she said, no, you've had a diagnosis. So you are the same as everybody else. You need to come in and see our cancer nurse, which I did. And uh, I was amazed actually at her broad spectrum of knowledge about, you know, obviously there's so many cancers. Prostate cancer is all right. It's probably one of the more common ones. Um, It was, I had a really, really interesting hour with her and she was so... Nice yeah. and calming and reassuring. And she liked the choices I'd made. And um, she felt they were the right choices. Um, the message is really that, guys, you know, it, over 40, you need to just be getting your PSA test done. And you go to a GP, a lot of time, your GP will, depending on which GP you've got, will talk you out of it. He'll say, if you've got any symptoms, you go, no. And you go, well, you don't need it then. And that's just saved them a load of money. Right. That's not right. I'm telling you, I had no symptoms whatsoever. None. Get over it, get over the embarrassment, go and get a PSA test done. And uh, if you can get a little, um, little examination done as well, I'd recommend it as well.
2: And partly you support a Cherry Lodge, you're running the London Marathon. Yeah,
3: oh God, yeah. <laughs> I am. yeah.
2: When and does so, training start or how ready are you?
3: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm all right, I can run a half marathon. But I'm just suffering a little bit of pain at the moment, trying to get rid of that. We're formally starting training at the beginning of January, and it's a 16-week program. And then it's hard 16 weeks. Right. Hard, hard 16 weeks. To get Christmas out of the way first. Because the thought, I can run a half marathon, that's fine. When you get to the end, you're knackered. Yeah. And then the thought of turning around and running back to the beginning is about as alien as anything could possibly be, because you're like, you think, oh, thank God we're at the end. And now I think, you've got to run back the same distance.
2: So if people um, know you or want to support um, Cherry Lodge Cancer, how can they support you?
3: Oh, that'd be marvellous. Um, so we have a Virgin Money a Virgin Money Giving page. Yep. Um, and um, they need a link. Will they Do they search me? We will have, have a, a link. So yeah.
2: when this information goes out, when the show goes out, we'll make sure that everybody's got access okay. to the link. But if you can support Gary and support um, Cherry Lodge Cancer Care, it would be huge, absolutely huge. I think you said something quite um, pertinent on Tuesday, which was, Everyone comes up, she says, do you, do you want a drink? I'll buy you a drink and so on.
3: But where could they put that money? Yeah, no, absolutely. They don't bat an eyelid paying a fiver for a beer. But I'd rather not have the beer or the three quid for the coffee. I'd rather it went into um, into my funds. Um, that'd be really, really helpful. Fantastic.
2: Uh, There's a £5,000 target. £5,000 target. We'll smash
3: it. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah, we're only just into it. It's only been up for a couple of weeks now. We're just under a grand at the moment. Brilliant. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm hopeful I'm going to hit all of my suppliers air conditioning supplies, plumbing supplies, Ripe electrical them. Supplies. Yeah, make them. Yeah, let's see how much the plumbing <laughs> suppliers give. But... Um... There, won't, yep, there won't be on the end of the phone, will they? Communication. So, yeah, I've got, to, I've got to nail the whole world. And um, uh, I've got to nail the whole world for, um, for some sponsorship. A little bit of contribution. So. Brilliant. All right, guys. So
1: do click the link below and um, help out Gary. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, so thank you very much to to Gary there for uh, inviting us into his home. I love the curtains.
2: That was his actual home, by the way. I know it it looked like a studio, it looked like a
0: set,
1: but
2: that was Anyone want a
0: branded photo shoot? Oh, Gary.
1: (laughs) 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 So don't forget, we've we've published the uh, link to Gary's Just Giving page. That's on the page on the website. And we'll give out details again about it later on in the show notes. Um, But there's a lot of thought-provoking things in there from from someone like Gary, who's been in business a long time and started out on the tools and built a business of scale.
2: Yeah, and I think the big thing for me that stood out was Gary originally wasn't um, an actual tradesperson. You know, he came from a sales background. He had that sort of sales Mm -hmm. and almost marketing mentality to a point. So when he um, turned his hand to, to buying that air conditioning franchise and started out, he still sort of had the end in mind in terms of he wanted to sell these units to make money. It didn't become the love of air conditioning or the love of a specific trade. And it's interesting when I speak to different trades, and I'm sure you guys are the same. The guys that have fallen straight from school into a trade often find it even more difficult to then put their tools down, um, move aside and start to build that business it's going to provide for their family. Um, but I think Gary put it really, really well. Um, and it's just, you know, as he mentioned, he, he went back and spoke to trades afterwards to see if they had made the step and it's so so difficult so difficult so do you know do reach out to Gary if you're part of his BNI network or you know him you know do reach out to one of us it's it's so important but so necessary that step.
0: I'd love to know from your perspective though as well what was your turning point when you uh, and what happened to suddenly make you aware that actually I need to get off the tools to be able to grow my business to what it was.
2: I think for me personally and it's why I kind of go back and I'm quite interested to do some more research on it was I got into gas engineering because of the 2008 recession. Mm -hmm. So in sort of 2006, 2007, I started to retrain um, and then I made the jump and heating is a recession-proof business. But I never sort of became a a gas engineer, heating engineer, plumber because of my love of that particular trade.
0: You don't love boilers? I
2: don't love boilers, (laughs) I I, I know. (laughs) But but to be fair, there's guys out there that that do, they're passionate about their industry and that's great, that's fantastic, there's no issue. Mm -hmm. So I suppose for me to separate, um, I do a lot of personal development, business development, but my business skill, I could kind of turn to whatever industry. It wouldn't matter. So for me, it was a case of, right, I'm enjoying the the trade at the moment. I'm getting somewhere. I'm learning things all the time. But once, I think it's 10,000 hours, is it? 10,000 hours mm-hmm. working 40 hours a week, five years. You get to that point where it's like, well, I'm not passionate about this industry anymore. What I became passionate about was the apprentices I was with, the guys I was with, the business partners I was working with, um, developing the brand and all the other aspects of the business. So for me, I was very motivated to train these guys up because I saw them as better engineers than I would ever be.
1: What did you think? Because he made some really quite interesting points when he was saying that, you know, I can't go off the tools because, you know, any staff member or you know, anyone below me is never going to love my clients as much as I do or provide mm-hmm. as good a service, which is obviously seems to be the main bone of contention there. I mean, obviously, no one is, are they?
2: I don't think anyone is. And again, it goes back to that, this perfection idea that I give my customers 10 out of 10. You may well do as an individual, but human expectation and the way most customers are is they probably expect 7.5 or 8 out of 10. That's their expectations. So if you can train people up and you've got the relevant systems processes in place to ensure that the service or product you provide delivers a 9 out of 10, even though it's not as good as your perfect 10 out of 10, you're still exceeding customer expectations.
0: And I guess that comes from not only leading by example, but using people like yourself and coaches, because even though you could be great at doing whatever skill it is, carpentry, plumbing, etc training other people isn't necessarily a skill everybody has. And to be able to help implement that um, to a wide range of um, ages, different skill sets of people that are coming into your business, like to get some help, To do that as well can be something that can be a real game changer, I guess.
2: And and we saw that with Marvel. You know, we saw a different sort of generation of engineers that would love the job, but didn't really enjoy taking the apprentices out or enjoy taking the apprentices out, but actually weren't letting them do anything. Mm. So it's about being very realistic with your own skill set and the skill set of the individuals you've got working with them. Otherwise, people just won't develop and then they'll get unhappy and then they'll leave.
1: Well, actually got more of a positive now. I thought it sorry, sorry. But if you do it right, then stay forever and make you loads
2: and loads of money. Then you can have days off, spend time with the family, save your marriage, go on holiday, why not buy a new car?
1: Good enough? Perfectly put. And in ten seconds. <laughs> um, thank you very much for watching. Don't forget to check out all the show notes at marketingsimplified.co.uk and we'll see or you can hear us next
0: time. That's all for this time. But don't worry, we'll be back with more soon. Stay tuned for new episodes at marketingsimplified.co.uk.